Now, uh, we're starting a new series called The Pursuit, and recall we're talking about God and His great love pursuing us. And uh, in Luke chapter 15, we're confronted with a question. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three different parables here, telling us, illustrating for us, the love of God. And as we read the text, we're taking the first one this morning, which is verses 1 through 7. And as we read through Luke 15, we're confronted with this question. What is our attitude towards sinners? Now, when I say sinners, we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. So let's get that straight now. What we're talking about here specifically in our situation is the lost. The people who are lost without Christ. The downtroddens. The unwanted. The undesirables. What is our attitude towards those people? Do we condemn them like the Pharisees do in the text? Or do we love them as God loves them? In fact, you can go a little step further and ask the question, do we line up with the second phrase of our church logo or our motto? Remember, the first is living by faith. And the second part is that? All right. So are we living up to that? Are we known throughout our community, through our county, through our state, people who are known By our love. Now in the book, His Mission, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, which was written by Kevin DeYoung, talks about this love and this type of illustration. He talks about in most cities, in communities and neighborhoods, you'll see signs like this one that you'll see on the screen in a moment on a a utility pole. Rashonda? It's all right. You'll see this sign like this one. And some of these inform us of things for sale. They'll talk about cars or houses or yard sales down the street. Now, reality is, a lot of times on these utility poles, you will see multiple signs. If you go to a big city like New York, they're plastered all over the place. And some of these signs inform us of things that are lost or people that are lost. It could be a pet, like a dog or a cat. And, of course, missing people. Now, when you first see these signs, you might have a tinge of sympathy towards what's going on. But as time goes on, nothing seems to happen. The seasons change and the pictures start to fade. However, nothing seems to happen. And as you go by these signs, you can't help but wonder and think, do they expect me to do all the work? Is anyone even looking? Or do they think by putting up that sign, the person or the pet that is lost will look at the sign and realize, oh, gee, I'm lost. I need to go home. Do they really think that's going to happen? This is not the way God seeks after us. In our text today, the the shepherd doesn't put up a sign somewhere and go, hey, I lost the sheep. No, he leaves the 99 and pursues that lost one. And so oftentimes we have the mentality here in America, if we just build a nice church building and put a nice sign up front, people will come. That's not the case. People will come when they see our love expressed outwardly towards the community and towards each other. We need to have a nice facility. Don't misunderstand me. But the old mentality, build it and they will come, 
no longer works. We need to pursue them as God does. We need to pursue them with grace and rejoice when they turn to God. When's the last time you went to a baptismal service and people stood up at standing ovation and just clapped and cheered? Why don't we do that? Because someone who was once lost has been found. They are now part of the family. That deserves rejoicing and celebration. Not simply what I would call a golf clap. And I think I shared this with you before. A difference between a golf tournament and a football tournament. You go to a golf tournament, right? The PGA. Tiger Woods is one one in Japan, by the way. He gets up there. He lines up the putt. He, he sinks his 50 50-foot punt, he's going to win it, and he lines up, he looks at how the ground's breaking, he goes all around, and they hold up signs, by the way, tell you, be quiet. He steps back, and he hits the ball, and the ball goes in, and the crowd does this. Very civilized. We don't want to act like a bunch of heathens. We want to be civilized about it. But in a football game, when the football team scores the winning touchdown, at the end of the fall, like the Cowboys actually won a football game in the fourth quarter. The people stand up in the stands and go, no, they scream, yeah, they get all excited and clap and cheer. And I was preparing for this lesson today. I thought, man, how come we're not like that when people are saved, when people come to know God? And we look at our text this morning, We're starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 15. It says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, Jesus, to listen to him. Look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, or teachers of the law, began to grumble. Oh, they're starting to complain. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Look at verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. All the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him. They're drawing to him to listen to what he has to say. If you look in verse 21 of Luke chapter 14, you will see he talks about the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. If you look at that in context in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 16, he talks about a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who have been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all like began to make excuses. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city, And bring here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. This is who he's talking about. He's talking about the tax collectors and these people who were the downtrodden. People didn't want to hang around with coming to him and to listen to him. 
They were drawn to him. Notice that word, all. It doesn't say some or certain. It says all of them. The tax collectors and the sinners are the ones who have ears to hear, as we read about in Luke chapter 14, verse 35. Look at the response of the religious leaders of that day. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. They were complaining that he receives or he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, I'm thinking that perhaps they have the Old Testament law in mind to not associate with sinful people. And they're applying it here. Like in Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the paths of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. Perhaps they're thinking about that. You can't associate with these people. It tells us the Old Testament law to stay away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul writes this, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I think what's really going on here is we're not, be careful who we hang out with, but here's, the word I want you to pay attention to. It's influence. We don't want them to influence us and our behavior. We want to influence them. Rather than just cut them off. Because if we don't ever associate with people who are lost, how will they ever hear? That's our job, by the way. Our, our whole commission is, go ye therefore into all the world. Jesus, from everything I've taught you. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's in Matthew chapter 28. That's our job. If we isolate ourselves, we put ourselves in a bubble, how will they ever hear the gospel? In fact, Greg Forrester digs into the question of where the church's influence has gone. This article called Joy for the World, How Christianity Lost Its Cultural Influence and Can Begin Rebuilding It. He writes in part, evangelical Christians have put too much stock in politics and education as the chief avenues in which they can influence others for Christ. And he contends that America and the world needs to see joy-filled individual believers living out their lives as disciples of Christ and stop distorting Christianity in ways that wrongly leads others to see it primarily as a f- formula for eliciting conversions or as a political movement. So what he's saying here, it's okay to use our influence for political means. We should care about who gets in the presidency. We should care who's in Congress. But that's not our chief avenue for changing the world, to tell other people about Christ. It's individual believers living that out, a joy-filled Walk with Christ. That doesn't mean you're happy all the time. It means you have that peace of Christ that never comes your way. And people see that lived out. I have a responsibility to, to do that, not as your pastor, but as a Christian, as a believer. And I think a lot of times we look to the, quote, professional, unquote, Christians in churches, your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, your children ministers, all to do that. And we sit back and say, it's their job. No, it's the church's job. Now, I'm going to say something that may strike you kind of funny. People expect me to invite them to church. After all, Tim's a pastor. That's his job. But when the lay people get involved in it, wait a second, these people are for real. You see the difference? 
And what he's talking about, how can we influence our society again? It calls for everybody, not just the leaders, the pastors, the teachers, the deacons, everybody living out that life. Now, to really get myself in trouble, I'm different because I like all types of music, but all types of music or worship. But I like the new stuff, the old stuff, everything in between. I love the old hymns because they have rich theology in them. Some of the newer stuff doesn't. Some of the newer stuff does. But here's the thing. We dress up, which we should, because we're meeting with the King and King and the Lord of Lords. But here's the thing. I want, just bear with me as I try to unpack this. If people see me totally opposite living on Sunday, I walk this way, I dress this way, I only listen to this type of music this way, and I'm totally different on Sunday than I am the rest of the week, they're going to say, something ain't right. See, Sunday should be a natural outflow of who we are as believers is the point. And I think a lot of people in our society have seen that distinguishing. And let's face it, us pastors haven't done a very good track record. We seem to be falling by the wayside if you watch the local news almost every week. So if we want to see influence back in our society, then it calls for all of us to live out that life, not just the leaders. To call it that life, to live it joyfully, and people see the individual believers doing that. Not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. Did you catch what uh, Jenna said last week? She was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she talked about that. But did you catch what she said? It didn't matter if God chose to heal me in this life or not because I was safely and securely in his hands no matter what happened. Because if I wasn't here, I'd be with him in heaven. See, oftentimes we stay focused on if God heals us or not in this life, and that's all we hear about. What happens if God chooses not to heal you? But think about this. If, if I have a disease and I pray for God for healing and he doesn't heal me here in this life, when I get to heaven, I guess I'm completely healed. Am I not? So we need to get where we're praising God no matter what. It doesn't mean we walk around with a fake smile on our face. Even Jesus cried. Remember that? Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he felt the compassion of the people he was moved deeply within, and he wept. But through our sadness and the grief, because we are emotional beings, by the way, that's how we walk through it. We realize through our tears and grief, this is not the end. How many times has that wrapped around you in peace and in comfort, knowing that I'm hurting right now, I don't understand everything, but I know God has everything in His hands. He goes on. What if a man, what if one of a man had a hundred sheep and has lost one of them? There's a picture here going on of a, a shepherd counting his sheep at night, and he finds one missing. And he says, does he not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after one of them? In other words, the shepherd is bending all his attention and cared to recovering the lost sheep. He does not say to himself, eh, it's just one sheep, I have enough, don't worry about it. That word translated lost, and the Greek means to cause or experience destruction, perish, 
it would be ruined. In fact, you find that same word in Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 5, translated perish. So it does mean all those things. So when we talk about someone who was lost, we need to take one step further, really talk about and look about and think about what does that really mean? That person is going to perish. That person is going to be destroyed. He's going to be or she's going to be ruined because the word is used in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is there comes the Greek word lost. Because without Christ, we are lost. We are ruined. We'll be destroyed. It's a life. It's a it's a situation of life and death. He leaves the 99 in open pasture or wilderness, or literally that means desert. And Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, renders that same word on the mountains. And shepherding was done on the east side of Bethlehem and Desert Mountains. And there is a picture of a modern-day shepherd. That's what the fields look like. So you can see there's not a lot of vegetation. One of those sheep wandered off, you get hurt, you get attacked. So both those terms, open pasture, desertless, can be used to describe this area. So what does he do when he finds one missing? He goes after the one, but listen to the prepositional phrase that modified. Not only does he goes after it, he goes after it until he finds it. That's for a little bit, not just for an hour, not for two hours. He keeps on pursuing that lost sheep until he finds it. That reveals the persistence and the resolve of the shepherd. He's responsible for each sheep. If he is to lose one, it would be money out of his own pocket. Unless he could prove that it was killed by a predator. This explains why he would leave the flock with some other shepherds. Because only would he lose money out of his own pocket, but then you have that description, oh, that shepherd is no good. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. He'd be known as a careless shepherd. And by leaving the 99, the shepherd's not saying the other 99 are not important. The fact that he would go after just one of them proves how each animal is dear to him. Think about that for a moment. Jesus, God, cared so much about you that he kept pursuing you until he found you. He would not stop. Would not stop until he found you. And what he says in the text, look, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. That's expressing his loving care. Frequently, a sheep that became lost was weak and could not keep up with the rest of the flock. And therefore, the sheep shepherd needed to carry it on his shoulders. I've also heard it say that sheep are not the smartest animals in the world. Sometimes they break a leg or two and have to carry it so the sheep wouldn't wander off on itself anymore. But what a picture. Look at this picture up here of Christ holding us up. Ever felt like that guy? Look at that guy. Just completely worn out. And who's behind him holding him up? 
our Lord. I can identify with that man. I was like that when he found me, when I was lost. And even after I'm a child of God, there are times I feel like him. Situations arise, feel like you can't go on. What's the difference? And Christ grabs me, holds me up, and carries me. It's like the poem you probably heard about the footprints in the sand. You're walking with the Lord, and you're talking, you look back, and you see two sets of footprints, but then you see an area where there's only one set of footprints. And you go back and say, Lord, when I look back at that one set of footprints, those are the times where I had so much conflict and so many issues in my life. Where did you go? And he says, that, Tim, is where I picked you up and I carried you. That's why it's so important that we remind ourselves that no matter where we go, God is with us. There's nowhere we can flee from his presence. Psalm 139. Go to the toppest mountain to the lowest place on the earth. It does not matter. Light day does not matter. You cannot accept, escape the presence of God. He's always with us. And he says in our text, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. There is joy leading someone to, ever led someone to, to Christ? There's a joy in you that, wow, one more has been saved. And as that person comes forward and gives her life to Christ, he or she, we should stand up and rejoice. One more has come. One who was lost is now found. One who is blind now sees. And we can all rejoice in that. A new child in the family. And I love what he says next. In the same way that, can you see the shepherd coming back? He, imagine the shepherd lost his sheep and was searching all night. In the wee hours of the morning, he comes back and he says, Hey, I found them! And they start to rejoice and they start to celebrate. And Jesus says, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, we don't understand how much rejoicing would take place, but that was their livelihood. That was everything. And so they're happy, and his friends are happy for him. But yet Jesus says in heaven there will be even more joy than that when one sinner repents. The future tense of this verb could talk about final judgment, but I mean it's actually the present. When someone comes to Christ, there is rejoicing in heaven. A long time ago, I first became a believer. I heard this song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean, and it really captures what I'm trying to say here. So I'm going to read through it and pay attention to the words. He, God, loves to hear the wind sing as it whistles through the pines and the mountain leaves. And he loves to hear the raindrops as they splash to the ground in a magic melody. He smiles in street approval as the waves crash through the rocks in harmony, and creation joins in unity to sing to him majestic symphonies. But his favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean, lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift to him a song of love, there is nothing more he rather hear, nor so pleasing to his ear, as his favorite song of all. 
And he loves to hear the angels sing, Holy, holy is the Lamb. Heaven's choirs in harmony lift up praises to the great I Am. But he lifts his hands for silence when the weakest saved by grace begins to sing. And a million angels listen as a newborn soul sings, I've been redeemed. Because his favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When the sinners now made clean, lift their voices loud and strong. When those purchased by his blood lift to him him a song of love, there's nothing more he'd rather hear, nor so pleasing to his ear as his favorite song of all. And then the bridge, it's not just melodies and harmonies that catches his attention. It's not just clever lines and phrases that causes him to stop and listen. But when everyone's set free, washed and bought by Calvary, begins to sing. That's his favorite song of all. So next time we're singing congregational worship, picture that song in heaven. As the angels are singing, creation is singing. It's like God is going, shh, listen. Oh, that's so sweet. Or that one person he's been pursuing for so long comes. Oh, listen. Oh, that's so sweet. He loves to hear his people sing. It's not about being in tune. It's not about having musical talent. Because that's pleasing to human ears. We need to tune in what's pleasing to God's ears. And what's pleasing to his ears is when his people lift up loud and strong praises to him. I think about that as I think about that shepherd coming back. And all the celebration that was happening. I think about that scene in heaven. He said that would be more joy over that one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who need our repentance. Now this may be referring to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes. But that would be understood ironically because they think they are righteous. Perhaps we can best understand the 99 in this parable as always as those already saved. But we can't press that too much because I think the whole point of this parable is telling us how much God loves it, how much he rejoices, how glad he is when one sinner turns back to him. The great joy over the repentance of that one as they receive life. When that happens... We are reminded that we were once the ones who were lost. God came in pursuit of you to save you by his grace. And when we remember our own desperate need of grace, we'll be more likely to extend it out to others. More likely to break out of our holy huddle here at church around people who already believe in Jesus. Instead, we were want to cooperate with the Father to go to pursue the lost and sharing God's love with them. There is nice to have a huddle, isn't it? Coming like-minded people, get kind of pumped up for the next time. All those times we, we laugh and sometimes we cry, but we realize we're not alone. We have each other. We have God. But in those times, if we remember from which way we came, 
You didn't know me while I was a lost person. Now, I'm not going to get into air dirty on my laundry out. But trust me when I say I was the least person you thought would come to Christ and salvation, much less become a pastor. See, not only did he save me, but I will tell you this. If I didn't give my life to Christ when I did, I'd probably be married to Tammy right now. My life was headed for utter destruction. And I look back now. It's like he let me look off the edge and he pulled me back. Not only did he do that, but now he allows me to be part of his work by preaching the gospel every Sunday. Someone like me who stutters over words, gets things wrong, professes to live one way but constantly falls down in a lot of ways in his life. But I know if he can do that for me, he can do it for anybody. I've experienced the power of the gospel in my life and continue to experience it. Now, I think most of you in this room have given your life to Christ at one time or another. My question to you is, what's holding you back? What is it? Are you listening to the lies of the enemy that's telling you you're not worth it? Don't bother. Don't listen to him. Look at the cross. Think about how God is pursuing you. You think being here this morning is just by accident? That's God pursuing you. Through this message, through coming to this church, God is putting people in your life and he's actively pursuing you. Even as a believer, he is pursuing you to change you and to mold you into the image of his son. That we become more Christ-like today than we were yesterday. It really stops to make us think that how do we as individuals and as a church body do evangelism? Do we expect the losses to come and seek us out? Kind of like putting that picture up on the utility pole. Okay, they'll come if they need it. Are we going out and seeking those out who do not yet know God? And there's so many different ways you can do that. And sometimes it's a long process. I know we have a lot of people who pray in this church. We have a lot of prayer warriors. And I know there's a group that meets here every Wednesday at 1.30. You know who I'm talking about. A word of encouragement to all of you. I did not give my life to Christ until I was 33. A year later, I gave my life over to vocational ministry. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I know God was calling me. Ladies and gentlemen, there is power in prayer. Do never, never give up. Keep praying. Keep witnessing. Keep going. Do not ever give up. You know how many times that's come back to me as a pastor? How many times I just like throwing in the towel, I'm done? And what comes to my mind is for the first 33 years of my life, I can look back now and see where God was pursuing me. But if God didn't give up on me and stop pursuing me, then how can I give up on anybody else? I can't. I got to pursue them as he does. In a book called, When It Comes to Evangelism, The Small Things Really Matter, is an article written by Bob Samitana in Lifeway Research on August the 28th of 2017. Look what he says. When it comes to effective evangelism, small churches can make a big impact. They just have to keep doing the basics with intentionality. 
Churches of all sizes that are effective in reaching and staying connected with new believers are those who are intentional about reaching out to invite people to come to church and are very hospitable to the lost when they come. Sound familiar? We do that same thing right here, don't we? Ever heard of the Blast Kids? How many times have you felt like giving that up? But yet it shows if we're consistent in doing just those little things and do it with intentionality, it'll be effective. How about all of you who make people feel welcome? That's one compliment I get. Well, I feel very welcome and love when I come. You keep doing that. That's effective. So my message is, and my question is to you this morning, is that we're on good, solid ground, on good footing. But we can't give up now. We just can't go back. We've got to move forward. Look how much God has done in the short time, the last three years. We can't afford to go. We've got to move forward. Keep on doing things with intentionality. Even though we can't see the results right now, keep moving forward. But then... By saying that, I have to say this. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Have you given your life to Him? And say, you know what? <laughs> I can't do this anymore. Uh, perhaps you feel like that guy in that picture. You're just totally worn out physically, emotionally, and spiritually. You're just like, I just can't do this. And that may be you as a believer this morning. We all have our stories. We all have things going on in our lives. Why not just sit of that today and just put it down before the cross? Let your brothers and sisters come around and give you, you just hug on you and love you and just pray with you. Because the enemy has one thing in mind. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. And he'll use anything and everything at his disposal to do it. Don't ever estimate him. But here's the good news. We serve the one far greater than he and there is a victory for those who believe in Christ. How often have we sung that song, Victory in Jesus, like this? Victory in Jesus. We should have some emotion behind us, some conviction. There's victory there. There's peace there. And there's comfort there. Whatever God's leading you to do in this moment, I pray and I encourage you to follow that voice this morning. Quit listening to the lies of the enemy. He is pursuing you with his great, unchanging love. Even now, he's pursuing all of his creation with one goal, to bring it and reconcile it all to himself by using one life at a time. And here's the greatest news. He allows you and I as believers to participate in that. In the greatest work there ever is. I have to say this and I will close. Close your eyes for a moment. Don't go to sleep on me. I want you to think of heaven. Think of the golden streets, the pearly gates, all that stuff we hear about. Once you imagine 
running into your loved ones who have gone on before. And the joy. And then you see the one who took the nails for you. He places a crown on your head and you fall down before him and throw your crown back at his feet. And he says, look around, behold, is your great reward. This is my opinion. I think that great reward will be, as we stand, it won't be the mansions, it won't be the gold, none of that. It will be all those people coming up and saying, thank you for serving the Lord and telling me about him. You can never put a price tag on that. And we never know how many lives we are touching. Be faithful. Be committed. Be intentional. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for pursuing us at all costs. Not to leave us wounded, bleeding, hurting, but you sent your Son in to rescue us and to save us and to give us everlasting life. And you have called us, dear God, to be part of that work, to go out and tell others what you have done for us as individuals and as a church body. And I pray, dear God, that If there's anything keeping us back, obstacles, barriers, walls, chains, whatever it is, dear God, I pray in the mighty name of Christ you would break them down today. Because we've read in your word that if your son has set us free, we are free indeed. Continue to move among your people for your glory and for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.